0: greetings comrades and welcome to the eastern border this week we will continue our long road to Russian Alaska by exploring the remaining tribes of the Siberia and talking about their management now uh, I've been a bit late due to technical difficulties and uh, well also because weird things are happening in Russia so expect a political episode this month too but yeah <laughs> this took a while to research and everything so I hope you'll enjoy it in the end. Oh, and also, I've received some packages from the United States. I asked on Facebook and on Twitter for to people to maybe send me some spare Warhammer miniatures, and it turns out that if you send me anything from the United States, and you kind of post that the price of the thing is over $20, then I do have to go to customs and write a bunch of explanations and everything, so if you ever decide to send me a package, which you've probably, totally should. I like, like, you know, sweets and, and snows, you know, the pouch tobacco and, and, um, well, candy and whatever. I, I like getting packages, like, like sending stuff back. Uh, just remember to know that it's a gift and that it, whatever it is, it doesn't cost over $20. They don't check what's inside or whatever. And value is something that you can just attribute to it. At least not in Lafayette, they don't. So, um, yeah, that's kind of important. Otherwise I'm getting into Getting in trouble, but yeah, let's get to the um, to the episode itself. And last time we spoke about the Samoyeds, we ended the last episode with the Samoyeds. This time we'll be talking about the Ostiaks and Vogels. and well, I'll talk about them together because well, they are considered in most sources that I have together because of the enormous similarities that existed in how they used to live and they were wearing, and they're still alive uh, today to an extent because Russia is a very multi ethnic country and they're often bracketed together as one ethnic group and their languages usually referred to as Hanti and Mansi in accordance today with their modern ethnic names and uh, Well, they even have their own kind of a a state Khanty-Mansinsky Okrug or Khanty-Mansinsky again put together a district in modern-day Russia. They mostly live there. Uh, However, um, these languages they are uh, In the finno ugrian family, basically they're related to Finns, and Estonians, and Hungarians, technically, but... um, Their languages, however, were, and still are, mutually unintelligible, each one falling into several marked dialects, because these people, even though they live very similar lifestyles, their languages are kind of incompatible. However, they lived in such close proximity for such a long time, that, well, beyond their linguistic differences, it's very hard to differentiate between them, a fact that's kind of reflected in the loose and, well, non-standard application of the terms Ostiak and Vogel in, well, all the 16th and 17th century Russian documents, because, well, then again, after what they spoke about the Samoyeds, there is not much to kind of wonder about as to how much the colonials really cared. The um, Ostiaks and Vogels first came to Russian attention through the Komizyrians, who were the inhabitants of the Pechora and Vichegda river regions. These people, the Ostiaks and Vogels, would have been the descendants of the Yugrians, which we looked upon in the Novgorod colonization. They kind of moved, moved away. So, who were these people, and how were they ruled? Well, let's get on with that, and let's start with the Ostiaks, who are known as Hanti today. In the 17th century, when they were encountered by the Russian colonizers and by all these expeditions, the Ostiaks led semi-nomadic lives along the Ob River, from where the river Vaslogan starts, to the Ob's mouth and in the basin of the lower Irtysh. And I'll try to find some maps for you, can't promise that, but we'll try to look for them. And earlier they inhabited areas to the west of the Urals, and in the 16th century Ostiak Uluses, as they would call their settlements, could still uh, be found neighboring Strogonov settlements of the Silva River. And there are some sources that suggest that as late as the end of the 16th century, some Ostiaks were living in Vogul yurts. Yurts are, if you know, these kind of settlements and, and also the tents of the Turkish style. And certainly, the intermingling of Ostiak and Vogul would not have been like you know unthinkable. They probably did. But our uh, Soviet source Bakrushkin believes that this was not the case, and that rather these kind of weird late 16th century Ostiaks were a remnant of a former population there. And what did they do along the river? Well, obviously, they did a lot of fishing. Uh, the fishing occupied kind of all their summer months, and in some winters, specifically, if the summer catch was, well, quite insignificant to kind of, you know, feed them through the cold season. It was kind of the foremost of their activities, because, well, in the areas that they moved to, yeah, farming really doesn't work that way. And interestingly enough, the fish was often eaten raw, with a portion of the catch boiled or dried for later use. And fish provided more than just food for the Ostiaks. And that's that's interesting because even their clothing, coats, boots and caps, most of this was fashioned from fish skins. Seriously. Especially burbot and less frequently sturgeon or sterlet, and the tendons and veins of some fish could be used as thread. A bad fishing season threatened not only a tribe's prosperity, but its existence itself. And a group of Kazim Ostiaks complained to the Russian Tsar in 1642, and this comes from Sibirský príkaz, which is cited in Bashurin's book uh, Na Plemen, which, I, which I use for this series, and they complained that, quote, <coughs> "...the harvest of fish from the many of uh, the great waters did not materialize, and many Ostiaks, with their wives and children, died from hunger." And others sold their wives and children for labor, well, which is basically slavery, to avoid starvation. And because of the famine, the government, Isaac will not be met. And, well, fortunately they were not, well, completely dependent on fish to meet all their needs, although, well, quite a lot, really. These Ostiaks living in the far north... Had adopted from their Samoyed neighbors the nomadic reindeer culture, keeping small herds near their forest homes or following them on their seasonal migrations toward the seashore as usual. As with the Samoyed, reindeer provided the Ostiaks with meat and materials for clothing. Where resources existed, which were kind of rare, and using spears and bows and arrows, other game was hunted also, including birds, hares, and squirrels. First, from the latter two were frequently used to line out other garments, especially parkas, thus offering an extra layer of protection against the cold. In southern areas, the Ostiaks wove cloth from nettle or hemp fibers, and made kind of garments for themselves that were often embroidered in wool or decorated with glass beads and metal ornaments. The skill of weaving was most likely learned from their Tatar neighbors, since the looms and weaving terms used by the Ostiaks were identical to those of the Tartars. The Ostjaks possessed certain other craftmaking skills and traditions that their more stable, compared to the Samoyed lifestyle, allowed them to practice. Uh, they fashioned boxes and containers for food and drink and babies' cradles from, from wood and bark, and they were often decorated with simple, stylized animal and plant motifs, some of which obviously had religious significance, as you know, they were tribal totems. Some tribes also practiced the art of tattooing, using a pike's jawbone or other needle like implement and, well, soot just like they do in uh, Soviet prisons, to apply designs to face and body. Uh, Using soot and needle uh, to port tattoos, I guess, is as old as, well, human civilization itself. Occasionally, the tribe Shaman would perform the artist's task, using the clan's symbol as a tattoo to heal a sickness. In spite of a fairly narrow range of goods, trade links did exist between the Ostiaks and the neighboring tribes as well as with the Russians. Unsurprisingly, obviously that really is, trade played a larger role in the lives of those tribes that were less nomadic. That is, those living where food resources were more plentiful, and who spent several months a year, usually in the winter, sedentary. Accordingly, uh, the busiest trading season tended to be the winter for, well, two basic reasons. Most Ostiaks would have settled into established Ulsas, their villages, for the season, and the primary uh, roads for the region, which would be the only roads, roads and air quotes here, the rivers, would be frozen, making the transport of sledges and animals with goods way easier than, you know, using the boat, because boats are, well, quite bad if you stuff them up with animal. One of the Isayak books reports that Samoyeds, quote, <clears throat> came to the and Obdor districts to trade at certain time along the first winter paths, end quote presumably referring to the waterways. Some settlements, uh, as Vojkarsky Garadok in the Obdor district, served as meeting places for annual so-called trade fairs or yarmark Typically, the Samoyeds would acquire supplies of dried fish, fish oil, live reindeer, and perhaps some of the aforementioned craft items, and in return the Ostyaks obtained furs. From the Russians, the Ostyaks traded for axes, pots and kettles, and some articles for clothing, providing furs in return. Obviously, Sable and Fox being more popular ones here. The location of their settlements was well suited to an Ostiak role as the middleman for the fur trade between the Russians and the Samoyeds. A role they played well and one in which large measure will account for the existence of the Ostiak Samoyed fur trade in general, because, you know, they were kind of forced to do this. interesting um, side note to this growing trade of the Russian merchants and trappers was the development among some Ostiaks of a money economy. This is items formerly, for barter, began to be purchased with uh, Russian currency, rubles, or just dinghy. In Russian it's it's money, but they use the term money for all the currency, and these groups of Ostiaks appear to be kind of among the first Siberian natives to adopt this strange practice of, you know, actually using money. Like most native populations, leading similar ways of life and being at roughly equivalent stages of economic sophistication, whether Siberian, Central Asian, or North American, these Westchek peoples were not organized into a nation-state with a single ruler or a sense of any common identity. Rather, they belonged to numerous separate clans, each with its own chieftain. Occasionally, groups of clans would get along quite well to kind of amalgamate under one ruler and act like principalities or very petty kingdoms. And such principalities existed at the time under the names of Koda, Lapin, Kazim, and Kunovat. These are the given documented names of them. In the late 16th and early 17th centuries, the basic social organization of the Ostiaks was, as mentioned, the clan. Groups living in the same general area compromised in Russian terminology a volost or a small rural district. These often exceeded one or two hundred Isayak-paint people, and on occasion approached three hundred. However, for all basically practical purposes, the fishing and hunting patterns around which their lives revolve, because they're still quite nomadic people, less nomadic than Samoyeds, but still, they did not permit large numbers of people living together, because there's very little in the way of real agriculture and urbanization, obviously. They don't really have such permanent settlements, so clans tended to consist of no more than a few families or extended families. Thus, any given so-called ulus, their tiny village, consisted from 5 to 20 dwellings in the residents, and 5 to 20 uluses made then a uh, a volost. And what were these kind of semi-permanent things? Well, in winter, the Ostyaks lived in permanent log huts, or lodges, made of branches covered with earth. When spring demanded that they start following the fish runs another game, they erected portable shelters of poles and birch bark. Modes of transportation were kind of similar to those of North American Eastern Woodland Indians and I use the term Indian here because that's, that's what my sources use again. I just don't want to say Native American again all the time, but I shouldn't, but that's a mistake some, some people have pointed out, but well, sorry about that, don't, don't mean to offend anyone. In a region where heavy snow covers the land for half of the year, obviously they also used skiing. Dugout or birch bark canoes were used after the spring thaw turned much of the territory in a vast network of rivers, lakes, and marshes. Irrespective of an individual clan's allegiance or the degree of difficulty a tribe's isolation, well, did present, the Ostyaks adhered to strict rules of exogamy when choosing marriage partners. It was considered sinful and disgraceful to wed anyone with the same family name, although this restriction was limited to male lions only. If a woman married into another family, her brother or his sons could marry any daughters she might have. In short, if the fathers of the prospective husband and wife were of different families, the union was legal. In a matter comparable to that of Samoyeds, a complex set of negotiations was undertaken to arrive at like a suitable bride price. Among the Ostiaks, however, it was more common to find the groom's parents acting on his behalf, and it was his family, rather than himself, who paid the so-called kalim, the bride price, usually in the form of reindeer, horses, furs, clothing, and, well, domestic utensils. Furthermore, a man in the Ostiak culture could have as many wives as he and his family could afford. And another thing is that this kinda notes the position that women occupied in Ostiak society. Their responsibilities were kind of similar to those of females in comparable cultures. Child-rearing, care of family dwelling, food and clothing preparation, in general, though. Sadly, they were regarded as a um, little more than a commodity to be bought and sold. Quote from my sources, Valued only as highly as what was paid for them, end quote. Examples about of their husbands selling their wives to whomever could match the column paid for her, and... Uh, our Soviet source Bakrushkin cites an instance of a woman being purchased for uh, just 10 rubles. And this is a curious example in that the woman was bought by the widow of the prince to whose clan she hadn't originally belonged. The woman in question had remarried after her first husband's death, but the new husband had not paid the proper column either to her family or her dead husband's family. And it's not clearly stated, but it seems likely that she was bought to redress a perceived offense against customs. The ten rubles were obviously paid to her brothers. In this specific case. The institution of slavery was also fairly well established among the Ostiaks. During times of famine, men would sell family members into service of others to avoid starvation. Most commonly, however, slaves were acquired in war. The more organized, quote-unquote, princedoms, staged regular raids on their less organized kin and on Vogel neighbors for the sole purpose of carrying people off into servitude. There exist numerous petitions from smaller clans complaining that Koda princes had attacked and taken away their women and children. The number of slaves in Ostiak society was also increased through purchases from Samoyed traders. War was, in fact, an integral part of Ostiak life. Year after year in the late 16th century Koda, princes, launched attacks on the neighboring Konda people, a vogel principality with the aim of obtaining slaves. By 1600s, the regularity of these raids induced the Kondi to seek relief from the Russians, pleading that they, the Ostyaks, kill our women and children and take them as slaves and leave our yurts deserted. Warfare provided to be one of the most profitable activities of Koda's rulers. For the time Ostiak weaponry was quite advanced, they possessed longbows, spears, and coats of mail, and helmets made of iron, which they extracted and forged themselves. By providing their warriors with the tools of war, the princes entitled themselves to a share of the spoils, thereby, well, further increasing their own wealth and power. Conflicts arose from causes ranging from the plundering of other types property, to your usual blood vengeance for murdered family members, because, you know, uh, before you have a nice little police force or something, killing someone who has killed someone of your family and so forth, well, it's an never-ending Game of Thrones, Iron price, and so forth, and, well, obviously, more conflicts happen because of, depending on, who might have represented the most lucrative opportunities of where an insult of or to a tribe's honor originated. The enemy the Ostiaks attacked could have been Russian Samoyed Vogel or, well, other Ostiaks. Well, as long as you have a reason, uh, and you have some iron, and you know how to use it, hey, why not um, do some little raiding? Uh, awareness of belonging to one's clan, which involves such obligations as mutual assistance and blood vengeance, was, uh, again, a very important factor in the perpetuation of the Ostia expansion for war. And now a bit, uh, a bit on the Vogels, which are the, the Mansi. As I noted previously, for all intents and purposes, there was very little, other than, well, language, which was totally different, to distinguish between the Vogels and the Ostiaks. In terms of material and social culture, the two peoples were virtually identical. However, there are some points that I'd like to point out here and talk about, because, well, some interesting things do differ a bit. Like the Ostiaks, the Vogels depended on um, hunting and fishing. In the more southerly parts of their range, however, it was possible for some Vogel groups to carry on rudimentary agriculture, which Ostiaks just didn't do. While it was practical, they grew barley, rye, and oats, and kept some cattle and horses. In the region, which was mixed forest uh, in the southern parts of their habitat, a bee husbandry also formed an important part of the economy. Hives of wild bees would be located in trees, marked with a family symbol, and honeycombs harvested later, and stored in wooden containers for use in winter. The level of their agricultural skills, however, was, well, quite primitive, and even into the 1620s the Russians counted only 70-75 to 75 people in the Tabarin's Uyazd using the land in agricultural way. Nonetheless, the benefits accruing from well, such use of domesticated plants and animals and everything that should be apparent because they really supplemented and helped to survive more and they supplemented the income from traditional sources and provided some security against the bad hunting or fishing season. Moreover, in years of plenty they formed an important component among all the goods offered for trade with other peoples. Finally, the familiarity with agriculture, however basic, was a major consideration for Russians later, when they had to decide how the Siberian aboriginal population could best be employed in the service of the state. Socially and politically, the Vogels were, again, very much like the Ostiaks. They were organized on a clan basis, each clan with a hereditary chieftain. Like the Ostyaks, some clans, well, cohered sufficiently well to behave somewhat like primitive principalities, the two best examples being those of Pelium, and Konda. Within the principalities, these yurts were often arranged into a system of sotnyas, a type of military administrative structure introduced by the Tatars, sotnya literally meaning a hundred. It allowed for a certain amount of delegation of authority, which led both to a more efficient collection of Ysayak and a mobilization of men in time of war. With respect to the Pelem Vogels, evidence suggests that even before the arrival of the Russians in the late 16th century, their social structures were undergoing some interesting and very fundamental changes. A more kind of profound and deep social stratification was replacing the traditional patriarchal way of earlier times. Bakhrushkin notes that among the Pelim Vogels, quote, We observe a sharp delineation into the best people, so-called nobles, the courageous and strong murzas and ulans, and the Black Isayak people. Evidently those compelled by the former to pay them tribute. By the end of the sixteenth century, the selection of princes was the privilege reserved for the Murzas and the Sotniks. Now it's it's difficult to determine if the Russian presence accelerated the re- reordering of the Vogel society that Bakrushkin and others believe was well underway before before they came, but But yeah, on the contrary Moscow was often content to interfere as little as possible with native cultural and societal customs in order to reduce the risks of efficient tax collection. Whether the Vogels themselves sped up the process in order to emulate their Russian overlords is quite unclear, but certainly, well, possible, at least. And thanks to the geographic position relative to the Samoyeds Nostyaks, the Vogels were more subject to cultural influences from quote-unquote advanced peoples. To the south lived the Tatars of Sibir, from whom the best people of the Pelim Vogels, appropriated the dial Murza. Uh, Also, before I move on uh, by the hundred, in Russian the word Sotnik also has a somewhat military connotation, specifically among Cossacks, designating a commander of, well, like I said, one hundred. Applied to the Vogels, it signified an individual, generally chief or other elder, who wielded some power and influence over the clan affairs via the Sotnya. And, well, use of such terms helped the Russians make make sense of all these native hierarchies, and they were adopted there because, well, Sotnya was a Cossack term, Cossacks did these expeditions, Cossacks explained to Russians how the natives lived in Cossack terms, then the Russians started using these terms to speak with... The natives, and then the natives, adopted these terms into their own language to explain how they lived. It's, it's quite a linguistical maze here. But, continuing on, the relatively widespread uh, kind of occurrence of Turkic surnames in this region, hence uh, the intermarriage and the degree of Tartarization these Vogels experienced. The same Tatar craftsmanship that was found among the Ostiaks also was widely practiced in Vogel culture. More meaningful in the long run, though, is the fact that the heart of Vogul territory straddled the river systems that, from well, super ancient ancient times, had served as a bridge between northeastern Europe and northwestern Asia. By means of the Kama and its tributary, the Vishera, the Ural's could be crossed and access gained to the Tobol, from which could be, re, uh, could be reached the Irtysh and the Ob rivers. In a way, this region served as a cultural crossroads, and its resources utilized by Vogul, Ostiak, and Tatar alike. And from the lands of Perm, Russian traders came in Europe, bearing axes, knives and iron utensils, which they exchanged with the Vogels for furs. In time, the Russians became for the Vogels, as they did for all of Siberia's peoples, the dominant external influence. But now, now, like I promised, we're, we've done this nice little excourse in, uh, well, who were the people colonized in these parts of Siberia, now let's talk a bit about their administration. We'll later compare how the Russians will administer Alaska further on with this. As these will be um, some very interesting comparisons. Hey guys, Annette here. hope you are enjoying our new episode of the Eastern Border. As always, a big thank you to all of our Patreons. The show would not be possible without your help. If you are not a Patreon and would like to become one, head over to the Eastern Border page on Patreon.com. Please remember to also follow us on our social media, like Twitter, where we are known as Eastern underscore Border, and on our Facebook page. We also have a Discord server, so if you're interested in that, find the link in the description of this podcast. That's it for now. See you online. This podcast brought to you by RussianVoiceOvers.eu. Enjoy. Enjoy. If you look at any immediate problems that people who go on and uh, do some colonialism out there, of any nice little business venture involving the means of grabbing some land from the native peoples, the problem that is at the forefront here is basically the establishment and securing of some kind of permanent presence in a new territory. Despite not having to cross an ocean like the European counterparts, The russians still had to overcome the logistical difficulties of supplying necessities to their troops and administrators over great distances because russia is um, It's quite a large place It's quite easy to spot it on the map if you if you would look at it And if you would look at the european part of russia up until urals Ural mountains then that's a huge territory and stuff after that siberia oh boy these difficulties were compounded The farther east they moved, and by the general lack of any arable land in the regions being explored. Also, the lack of people to work with land was available, which would later cause serbdom, because, you know, forcibly moving people there and uh, working them, stuff like that. And uh, also by the political philosophy of Moscow, which dictated that all important decisions be made in Moscow, very centralized, as it's uh, happening still today, which would lead inevitably to uh, massive and costly delays in action on the frontier. Furthermore, policies had to be developed to deal with Siberia's native populations that would allow for um, successful pursuits of uh, principal goals in Siberia. Enrichment of the Stroganovs uh, and the Tsar, the acquisition of further wealth, without, you know, unduly alienating the indigenous peoples, because they kind of need to work for you and pay you stuff. This uh, last task was uh, the most important and challenging of all, because, you know, how do you deal with the natives? At the outset, Siberian affairs were handled by the Posolsky Prikaz ambassadorial department. This department's authority was based on the fact that in earlier times it looked after Moscow's relations with the Khanate of Sibir and had received the first shipment of tribute from the natives taken by Yermak's men. uh, also, what is noticeable is that as I read and compare these colonial ventures, for example, um, author W.J. Eckles in his The Canadian Frontier of 1534 to um, 1760 writes that while the Moscow Russian colonial venture in Siberia is distinctive, some comparisons may be drawn between its progress and the progress of the French colonial activity in uh, North America, so if I, I'm not an expert on, on how the French colonized their North American territories, but there are authors that suggest that there are some similarities of that, so maybe, maybe you're more accustomed to those things. However, in um, 1594, responsibility for Siberia was transferred to the Novgorodský príkaz, known alternatively as um, Novgorodskáya četvěrť, or just Chet. Until 1599, this department, which oversaw the financial matters of Novgorod, of Arkhangelsk, and other peripheries of Muscovy, dealt with matters concerning Siberia. From 1599 to 1637, Siberia was managed by the Sibirský Stol, or the Siberian Desk, a division of the Kazanský Dvorets, a cousin court, also known as Meščerský Dvorets, court, whose jurisdiction extended over the basins of the Volga and Kama rivers and into the newly-conquered Western Siberia. Then, in 1637, Tsar Mikhail Romanov elevated the Sibirsky Stol to an independent Sibirsky Prikaz and made it responsible for the day-to-day operations of the growing Siberian colony. This Prekaz exercised its mandate until 1711, when it was once again reorganized by Peter the Great, and many of its uh, all functions were transferred to a new office. By 1620, the annexation of western Siberia was essentially complete, with the Russians dominating the territory between the Urals and the Yenisei, and from the Arctic Ocean to the north, to the steppe borderlands and Altai mountains in the south. At this point, roughly 2.5 million square kilometers had been brought under Russian control, more than doubling Muscovy's territorial extent, and throughout this period, some means had to be devised to extend the Tsar's writ to the natives and administer the system of tribute, Isayak, which was the driving force behind the Russian presence in Siberia. Handicapped by a shortage of manpower that had to be scattered over such a crazy large area, and remember, population was much lower back then, the Russian goals achieved them um, by the construction of forts or blockhouses called Ostrogs. These were placed among important waterways, often at the confluence of rivers, where they could help detect and prevent any organized hostile action on the part of the local natives. The Ostrogs were surrounded by a stockade of sharpened stakes, along the length of which were embrasures for marksmen. At the corners and above the gates were towers, 6 to 9 meters high, equipped with artillery. Typically within the stockade were governmental buildings, a church, a prison, obviously, supply and weapons storehouses, barracks for the guards and soldiers, and residences for the Vojevodas, the war leaders, and other governmental officials. Sometimes, where possible, a moat was dug around the perimeter to provide extra security. Additional measures were usually taken to protect an Ostrog's landing site on the river by erecting two or three rows of palisades, so that during a siege communications with other towns wouldn't be severed. During the first decades of Siberian occupation, Moscow provided the vojevodos with elaborate and detailed instructions concerning the location, layout and construction of Ostrogs, micromanagement of the Tsars uh, being kind of their favorite pastime. This also included the number of people to be hired for the job and how much they would be paid. In addition to the Ostrogs, the government also built smaller forts called Ostrogics, literally small Ostrogs, and in outlying districts, zimovis meaning literally winter quarters. The latter were manned up by just six to seven men each and served primarily as meeting points for the collection of this Isayak from the natives. Once an Ostrog was established and the security requirements of the Russians were met, Voevoda and his staff could turn their attention to subduing the natives in the vicinity and imposing upon them the tribute, this Isayak. Sitting aside the Russians like a manpower, the hostility of some natives and the difficulties presented by a super harsh climate, the enormity of the task can be summed up by the demographics of western Siberia. You see, like I said, the territory is vast, they live in their tribes and they hunt and they do, they do stuff and um, the native population of western Siberia by Uyazd uh, in the first half of the 17th century, which is adopted from Beodolgich uh, which is a book which basically says tribal and ethnic situation and the peoples of Siberia in the 17th century, printed in Moscow and um, the USSR 1960. Well, there's a nice little combination here as it all kind of shifts around, but approximately the entire population taken together of all the tribal peoples that lived at that point there, in Siberia was uh, about, uh, according to this source, about 33,000 people of whom the Isayak payers, the males of the population who were deemed those who would pay the Isayak, what about, well, about 5,500. And they're very, very spread out and they're very um, kind of thin. But the Isayak is great because, for one, remember that these are tribal peoples and they, well, wander around and there's not a lot of people. But a lot of game, a lot of animals, and a lot of furs to be had, you see. That is why the population itself, who's just spread out over, well, western Siberia, is pretty huge. And when we'll get to the eastern Siberia and then to Alaska, weird things will happen. In the Alaska, uh, they're going to run into a lot of difficulties later on, again, with the natives. Because they'll try to apply the same tactics that they're going to use here to to peoples and native uh, americas. Continuing on. The territory of western Siberia was divided by the Russians into 12 administrative districts, or Uyests. Across the 2.5 million square kilometers, the average native population at any given time in the first half of the 17th century was, like I said, between 30 and 40 thousand people, thus uh, giving a population density of approximately 1.2 to 1.6 people per 100 square kilometers. Given that the natives would live in groups larger than this, there were great expanses of totally empty land that had to be reconciled and looked over in order to find them. You know, you want them to pay you stuff, well, first off, you have to look for them in this massive, massive territory. And, you know, they could also escape from Russian domination, at least in the early years of Russian advance. In order to achieve, because of this, a regular and efficient collection of the Sayak, Military measures alone were not sufficient. The voyevodas had to have a certain level of diplomatic skill, and, well, they had to have some subterfuge. By choosing strategic locations for the Ostrogs, which allowed for the isolation of local tribes and then encouraging already existing intertribal hostilities, the Russians could prevent most attempts at organized resistance, while at the same time increasing native dependence on them by agreeing to mediate tribal disputes or to, you know, redress the wrongs committed by one tribe or another if they were so petitioned, that is why I spoke about petitions earlier, and petitioned they did. And the price of Russian protection was the payment of this tribute. But some natives, the Kondovoguls, for example, saw Russian assistance against their old enemies, suggested they viewed the Russians as more than just conquerors. Rather, it points to the realization that the newcomers could be used to enhance the tribe's position versus its rivals. And these fortified positions was all that they saw at the beginning. Moreover, if gaining the upper hand on traditional enemies required the payment of tribute, it was deemed a fair price by some native groups or at least their so-called princes, who in all likelihood, would have been unaware or unconcerned with the long-term implications with respect to traditional occupations represented by such payment. Contributing to the need to find methods other than military enforcement to ensure the essayic payment were directives issued in Moscow stating that the natives were to be treated tenderly, and with kindness. It was ordered that all Siberian Isayak people were to be quote, protected and treated with kindness and courtesy. You are not to be cruel to them in any way. Russians are not to insult them, nor sell them into slavery, nor treat them with violence. Which is a grammata from Tsar Boris Fedorovich Godunov to the Golova Dmitri Lushkov. Neither were the vojevodas and their men to demand Isayak from old, ill, or disabled natives. Such official attempts to limit the amount of violence done to the local population may, well, have had a basis, in part at least, in the great importance many Siberian natives attached to physical dignity. Earlier methods of coercion, such as Pravesh, which, quote, entailed the beating of one's shins and calves with a cudgel when a debtor could not or would not pay their creditors, must have been, quote, such an affront to physical dignity that it aroused the determination to take revenge, physical revenge, on the offending Russian officials. Thus, The practical motivation for avoiding violence whenever possible to obtain the Syak Obviously, did not always work, as we mentioned in the first episode. Because the life is in Siberia. And very far away. But you know, I think this episode's kind of reached this point. We're gonna continue on with this administration part. In the next historical episode, I still have more, but then, then we're gonna go way over length. And also, I need to have a nice little political episode happening. So, next Siberian episode, we'll talk about how they, their policy of the divide and rule seems to have been fairly successful. And we're going to wrap up Western Siberia and move on to the Eastern Siberia. And these uh, this is just going crazier and longer than I thought at the beginning, but hey, it's actually a lot of fun, for me at least, doing and researching all this stuff, so I hope it was fun listening for you as well. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the Western Border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our hosts in the Great Motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The Dark Myths Void. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods,